Good morning, everyone. This is Jeffy Kennedy. I'm here with my first cup of coffee. Mm. Today is Monday, September 16th. It's a um, cool and wet morning here in Santa Fe. We had uh, quite a bit of rain last night, a lot of rain, because the rain barrels are all filled. I think it rained a lot of the night. Sad news on the pond. David is is really sad. Um, the koi are gone. So whatever it was that rampaged the pond, I had that photo in there on Friday, the Friday podcast. Um, whatever it was, it did get the koi out of there. We thought there were three that were quite large, and we thought, oh, if it had gotten the koi, that we would have seen like koi pieces on the sides but apparently it like carried them back off over the wall so somebody had quite the party Uh, yeah david's sad and i i feel bad for him although i wasn't sure how we were going to keep them over the winter so i guess i'm a little bit more pragmatic about that apparently i my sympathy doesn't go too far to fish. I think it's a bobcat. David thinks it's a raccoon. He was going to put out his night camera that's motion sensitive. I'm picking up Choi Burrs that the pack rat left out for me. Quite a few of them. Oh, and that's nice. That's disgusting, whatever that is. Little wad of excrement. Gathered up from other critters, looks like. Um, well, sorry, that was that distracted me. Um, oh, yeah, so he'd gotten out his camera, which he had not had out in some time, and which is 10 years old, and it's not working anymore. You know, some of those electronic, the screen wouldn't work on it. So he ordered a new one. Um, I think it's nice to have those anyway. I can always post the pictures for you guys of the various critters that come around here in the night. So we should have a bedding pool. Bobcat or raccoon? I've never seen a raccoon here. David says he's seen them. He's seen a couple uh, dead on the road. (laughs) But, um, I mean, we know that we have the bobcats because I've seen them walk across our front porch so and to me that's a bobcatty thing to do come over and stock the fish pond snag a nice koi and take it off over the wall i'd like to think that maybe it's mama bobcat getting some tasty treats for her kits uh, why am i not more sympathetic about the poor fish i don't know I think I didn't ever particularly like those koi, which is not wonderful of me. But when we had them on in the fish tank inside, they would um, dig at the bottom all the time so that they were always, they made that tank so dirty. Once David got them out of the fish tank, they really, the tank cleared up and it's so much nicer. Um, and then out in the pond, There was always so much algae in the pond, you couldn't ever see them. But David liked them. So, 
I told him we'd figure out something else for next summer. Um, we can't really think about doing anything right now. Oh, these pillows are pretty wet. And of course, did not put them up, which would have been clever of me. We'll see how damp this is. It's not raining right now, but it is pretty overcast. So, I don't know, maybe uh, next summer we might have... I said what we could do is get a new pond form and enlarge the pond. It needs to be a lot bigger and deeper so that the <laughs> fish have a place to hide from the bobcats. I don't know. I think it's funny. Um, David does not think it's funny. I think it's funny. So it'll be our secret between you, me, and everybody out there listening to this podcast. <laughs> Let's see. I had a list of things, and I brought my paper out. What did I do with my paper? I got so busy. Oh, here it is. Ah, so one thing I did over the weekend was I caught up on um, Leslie Penelope's podcast, My Imaginary Friends. Hi, Leslie. Uh, it is kind of fun because I feel like we're sort of having a non-simultaneous conversation. And she really liked Carnival Row, which is great. Um, you know, and I didn't hate it. That was that was my thing, was I just didn't love it as much as I wanted to love it. And Leslie made some really good points about it, about politics, you know, being part of the story. And I agree that the politics were definitely part of the story. My issue is when the politics become so overwhelming that they take over the story and they become the most important thing. And I think yeah, that's partly what the story was about, but I also read that they really amped that up um, because they wanted to make some points about immigration that were not in the original story, and I felt like that showed. But I absolutely do think politics belong in stories. I've, you know, I've been doing so many interviews about the Orchid Throne, which comes out a week from tomorrow, eek, uh, and that's a very political story in many ways. And I've been explaining to people that I wrote a whole lot of the Orchid Throne in the wake of the 2016 election. And that so much of it is about how do you live under a totalitarian government? How do you survive? How do you preserve um, things uh, that are human and loving and beautiful when you have people in power who care only for their own greed and self-aggrandizement so so yeah it's not and and i like leslie's books i think they're they're terrific books i'm looking forward to her release in october so it's not that the politics can't be in there and i was thinking about this it reminds me of the concept that amanda palmer talked about um when she married neil gaiman and one of the adjustments of the marriage of being two creative people who work in different mediums, but also have different approaches to how their lives become art. And she talked about it as being the blender setting, that they have very different blender settings, like how much of what happens in their lives is recognizable in their art. And Neil Gaiman has a blender setting of like nine or 10. 
so that what comes out in his stories, um, it maybe you can detect a flavor of an incident in his life, but it's it's on such a high blender setting that it's difficult to detect. And for Amanda, she has like a blender setting of one. I mean, she she barely uh, puts any spin on it at all it's pretty much her life pretty much in big raw chunks and it caused some trouble for them because even though they were both their art was reflecting things that they were both going through it was also um what amanda was putting out was so much more recognizable than what he was that it was something they had to adjust to so i think that the politics thing could be a blender setting thing uh, for me, Carnival Row, the blender setting was too low, and I didn't like all those big chunks. But, you know, some people like their milkshakes chunky, Leslie. <laughs> so there we are. That's my response. Um, and I enjoy, I'm still enjoying her podcast, which is My Imaginary Friends. I enjoyed catching up with that while I was doing a lot of driving this weekend. Um. Some other things I'm thinking about was I've, I did keep going with listening to Big Magic. After I listened to the podcasts, caught up on those, I went back and was listening to Big Magic some more. And I'm liking it better now. I've got some – it's having me thinking about a lot of things. Um, because Elizabeth Gilbert does have a really wonderful take on inspiration. And she has a theme in the book that I really appreciate, which I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to try to cross-stitch this. Maybe I want to get back into needlework. So I'm thinking maybe I could work on my embroidery or something because I would like to put this on my wall and maybe not just as a printout or something like I normally do. But it's the idea of delight and gladness. And she really views inspiration as something that comes to you and waits in the room for you. And and she talks about how do you treat the inspiration. And she tells this great story about asking a question. And it comes from, I think she said it was her cousin who teaches environmental science and the at SUNY. And the cousin on the first day of class class asks the students do you love the earth do you love nature and of course all of these earnest young students and taking their environmental and science degree education you know all say yes yes they love the earth they love nature and she says okay do you think the earth loves you and they say most of them say no and i was thinking about that that i it's like well what would i say so she said she's, tur and, and they said, okay, the cousin will say, okay, so we have a problem because we need to talk about this. Why do you think the earth doesn't love you? And what would it take for the earth to love you? Why don't we feel like our home that we sprang from loves us in return? And I'm th I, and she says that she's turned it around with writing students too, that she you know, asks people, do you love writing? And of course they say, we love writing. And she says, do you think your lo writing loves you? And most of them say no. And she's talking a lot about the idea that we are trained to think that art is suffering. And I really do appreciate her talking about that because as you know, I'm very big on that. I think stories can be 
something that conveyed delight and gladness, that fantasy and romance and science fiction can take us out of this world and out of ourselves and bring us joy, that literature is not only valid when it's about sad and sorrowful and tragic things. And, and she talks about why we think that, and I think that there, she makes some really valid points. But she also talks about how writers are taught that if you're not suffering while you're writing, that somehow you're not doing good work. And so she asks, does your writing love you? And I think that that's a really, it's an important thing to think about. Because I think a lot of times we do feel like we are at war with our writing, like we are struggling with it. I think that you could expand this to anything you work on, too. You know, that a lot of times you feel like you are fighting it or wrestling it. And what if you think about it in terms of playing with it? The concept of play is something I learned a long time ago when I was uh, studying Chinese internal martial arts, you know, approaching the training with a sense of joyfulness and play. And this wrapped in because I had caught up on Leslie's podcast as well, and she was talking about uh, Lainey Taylor and how she had lost the joy in her writing. And I thought, well, this is another reflection of that same thing, you know, being able to come at your writing with a sense of delight and gladness to be able to, you know, this thing that we love. And it reminded me of way back when, um, when I first started writing fiction, because I started out writing nonfiction. I started out writing personal essays. Um, and my first book was a collection of personal essays, Wyoming Trucks, True Love, and the Weather Channel. And... I would had started to write a narrative nonfiction book because uh, Wyoming Trucks was well received. I had agent interest, and this is forever ago. This uh, that book came out in two thousand and four, so fifteen years ago. And the agents would ask me what I was working on next, you know, because they're like, "Oh, I see these reviews saying you are a writer to watch. What are you working on?" And I would tell them about this narrative nonfiction project I was walking on, working on, walking on. And, um, you know, their eyes would just roll back in their heads. Nobody liked this project that I was working on. My editor had told me I wasn't ready to write it, put it in a drawer for a year. And I thought, well, what the hell am I going to do? Because, you know, <laughs> my whole plan to become a, you know, make my living as a writer is not working out at this point. You know, I had I'd achieved that goal of having a book published. And it had... It felt like it had gotten me no closer to my goal. I now know that this is a very common syndrome, you know, that aspiring writers put so much emphasis on getting that first book published. And, you know, it's so vanishingly rare for that first book to make your career. We can't all be Harper Lee, um, which is probably fortunate because, you know, if you're going to write only one book in your whole life, boy, you better hope that it's going to be an amazing book or that hits exactly right. Because I do think that uh, it's not always just the book. It's that serendipity. 
And maybe if that book hadn't hit like it did, she would have written more, which was one of Elizabeth Gilbert's points. So here I was feeling like I was no closer to my goal. It was kind of a, I don't know, a difficult point in my life. Things, Some things were good. I'd gotten some things handled. We'd moved into a house that I loved. So at this point, it was, well, I think like 2006, 2007 springs to mind, and I don't know if there's a reason for that date. But I woke up one morning from on a weekend, so and I'd slept in, and David was gone, and it was a lovely, cool, raining morning, very much like this one. It's not raining at the moment, or I wouldn't be sitting out here, but just one of those atmospheric days and i woke from this dream of a source that where i was a sorceress and i was trapped in fairy and i put on my robe and i went upstairs and started writing which was not something i always did you know just like that but you know partly having the quiet house and a day where i had no responsibilities and i sat and i wrote for hours and when I tell this tale, I always say something like four or five hours. I don't really know how long it was. Then I was not in the habit of writing for long chunks of time. So it felt like a really long time. I don't really know how long it was. I don't know how many words I wrote. But I wrote the opening chapter of this book. And you know, and it was, it was fantasy romance. It eventually became Rogue's Pawn. And it took me many, many years to sell. I think Rogue's Pond came out in like 2011 or 2012 because it was weirdly cross-genre. And there are a lot of things I would change about the book now. Some people complain. I see every once in a while a review on it and they'll say that it really gives them whiplash because it goes from being whimsical to dark so fast. And I wonder if I were to rewrite it now, if I would smooth that out. I actually don't look at it because I think it would probably bother me. But anyway, it was a fun story full of sex and magic, very much on brand for me. Um, and the thing is, is I had so much fun. I had so much fun writing fiction in a way that I had never had fun writing essays. I liked writing essays and I was good at it, but that felt much more like an intellectual exercise to me. And in many ways it was. I mean, I was always trying to my essays were almost always about some sort of pivotal event in my life, and I would be trying to figure out why it was so pivotal. And the the sheer ride of writing fiction, the delight and gladness. And I'm sure that Elizabeth Gilbert would say that inspiration had visited me, that in, inspiration had come to me, and I was receptive, and I took that gift, and I wrote it. And you can't really reinterpret, uh, you know, sort of the Monday morning quarterbacking. You know, it's like, well, that book wasn't a runaway success and didn't launch me into the stratosphere. It did not become Twilight. Um, it actually didn't. I mean, it did all right. It got me the publication with Karina. I did the trilogy with Karina. You know, it's sort of all this, what you consider to be successful. And I know that that's an enviable level of success for many people. It didn't do what I had hoped it would do, but does anything, 
right? You know, it's when you have high expectations, you sort of have to measure along the way and say, well, it didn't quite, you know, make it to the moon, but we still made it to orbit, and orbit's pretty cool. <laughs> so I think that um, recognizing that, maybe just trying to embrace that idea of the delight and gladness and welcoming the um, inspiration in, you know, remembering that we wanted to be writers because of, because we love it. And, and thinking about what do we have to do for the writing to love us? Because in those moments when it is fun, when I feel that delight and gladness, I do think the writing loves me. And Elizabeth Gilbert says, why wouldn't the writing love you? Because she thinks that ideas are wandering the world looking for someone to make them manifest. And she said, they found you and you're the one who is making them manifest. Why wouldn't they love you? So I think that's an interesting idea, and I'm going to work with that, is this feeling of um, that maybe the, the book does love me, maybe the writing does love me, and that that is a joyful thing. So on that note, I hope you can all go out and find some delight and gladness in your day. May whatever you take on be something that you feel like loves you for doing that. Go put that good energy into the world. And I will talk to you all tomorrow. Take care. Bye-bye.